Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show is a little different. We had a scheduling conflict with some other guests that left a gap, but Alex Jones filled the spot. And Alex is a former investment banker who almost made the Olympics in windsurfing. But while he's not a multi-unit owner, he is the owner of the best performing CPR cell phone repair franchise in the entire world. And that's a brand with over 500 locations worldwide, so that's no small feat. The craziest part though, is that that location is in Bermuda, a country with a population of just 63,000 people. We talk about how that actually helps his business, as well as how he turns his customers into the best salespeople for the business, and why your internal customer service, or how you treat your employees, is equally as important. I hope you enjoy this episode. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by The Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. I guess just a good place to start would probably be, you know, uh, what were you doing before you landed on uh, CPR cell phone repair? We started as an independent cell phone repair um, franchise, and it's a sort of long or winding road to get here. So my background's in finance, and I always hated doing math for a living. You know, my last job before this was literally sitting in front of spreadsheets for 10 hours a day, which... um it pays very well, but it's hard to to have a life while doing it. And so I was an athlete as well. One of my best friends and training partners went to the Olympics in 2008 for the US. And he came back from China with this cool Chinese phone. And so um, I thought they were cool. I looked at them. I looked at the local market here for phones. I said, okay, these things are really cheap. I, I wonder if we could sell them locally. And I, I did a whole analysis and brought in a couple of Chinese phones to see if they were worth selling here. And they were terrible. I mean, they were so bad. Yeah. But fast forward to 2014, I was still sort of had a hobby of playing with weird, cool electronics. And um, the phones got good coming out of China, Android 4.4. And so I started selling these phones. My wife would get mad at me if I bought stuff and just played with it and then was just spending our money on, on crap. And so... I started listing them on our local edition of Craigslist and reselling the phones afterward. And I started to make a profit on them. So my wife really couldn't be mad. So I'd start buying like <laughs> five or 10 phones at a time and then selling them to recover the, the cost of it. And then I got this tablet, which was a seven inch tablet, ran Android 4.2. And I put up an ad for it when I was done with it for the price I paid. And I got like 18 calls before I could take the ad down. And I went, okay, there's a market here. And so I was consulting and my contract finished and I had some time off and I didn't take another gig right away. And I got together with a buddy of mine. We put together some money. We opened a kiosk in the mall, filled it with Chinese phones and tablets and started selling. Um, this is in February, 2015. 
like a ton of phones and tablets just out of a kiosk. And then I thought I was going to hire some young person to stand there on commission and throw phones at people. And it took off. And so I said, okay, I don't really need to go back to work now. And so I started selling these phones and we were selling with a warranty. And I knew nothing about phone repair. So I went around to all the local phone repair places and I found them all to be wanting. And I ended up finding this hole in the wall in a battery town. And it was like eight feet wide. It was like an alleyway that they'd covered up between two buildings that had a phone repair store in it. And it was piled with trash. It had no air conditioning. Like they kept the lights off to save money, except in the back where the guy was working. And I started taking my phones to him to fix them. And I started to learn about what he was doing. And then I spilled water on my MacBook Pro. And I was all ready to spend $800 on a new logic board for this thing. And I took it into him and I gave it to him at like five o'clock at night. And he called me the next morning and said, here, computer's ready. It's $100. I went, oh, wow. So I gave him 150 bucks and approached the owner about the business because it was obviously just kind of abandoned and not, it, it wasn't being managed. It was just a technician sitting in a, in a room. And so we took it over and it turned out that the business was actually pretty deeply in debt. Uh, hadn't paid its rent in a while. It wasn't paying its staff properly. wasn't paying any of its taxes. And so we took over the business for the debt and then plus an amount to be paid out afterward. So he financed the whole thing. And then we turned it around and we just started old fashioned business building, serving people, marketing, you know, cleaned up the front area. We got an entire giant dump truck of trash out of a space that was 40 feet long and eight feet wide. And under that name, we, we just started doing business. And then we moved it to a larger location and kind of got rid of the mall kiosk um, in the mall, which was about 600 square feet and built it up to where we had six technicians me and then three front desk staff working. And that was about when I approached um, the various cell phone repair franchises. And I know this part is your your bread and butter. And, you know, a lot of people say to me, like, wow, you guys approach them because the <laughs> franchises are out trying to sell to the independents saying, hey, come convert, come convert. And I spoke to you, Break Guy Fix, which I think most people are familiar with. And they wanted me to give them 7% of our sales just off the top. Just before we get there, so you, you didn't like your job in finance. And once once this business was cash flowing and you saw opportunity there, you're like happy to move on from, from your W-2. Why approach a franchise even at all versus just stay independent and grow like grow your own brand? So I thought that the franchises would have some special sauce that would fix all of my problems. <laughs> Because, you know, it's every day was a struggle because I was just sort of figuring out how to do it on my own, you know, from even sourcing the parts, like we used one part supplier and they got raided by the U.S. authorities and shut down. And so we went from like ordering every week from this one supplier to they just were not in business anymore. And so we had to like scramble around to find another supplier. And back in like 2017, like the whole supply chain was just not. In, in North America was just not very good. So we were like buying from China and like it would be like a three or four week lead time. And then like you order a part that's supposed to be one quality, but what you get is something completely different. And, um, you know, I went to one of the trade shows in China to try and source things like cases and screen protectors and accessories. And um, we got those, but it was all just, everything was 
me figuring it out the hard way. Yeah. You know, when we took the business over, there was no ticketing system. There was no management system. It was all just, they put the phones in a little uh, Ziploc bag with like a carbon copy receipt with a person's name and phone number taped to it and then stick it on a, um, on a long peg. And then he would kind of work from the back to the front. It was like being a short order cook of a, a repair, phone repair place. <laughs> and that obviously doesn't scale very well. So we implemented um, NERP and started ticketing and implementing like check sheets for booking things in and out so that the customer couldn't back come back and say, hey, that was working when I gave it to you. And I thought that the franchises must have some special sauce that I was lacking. And so I approached CPR and you break, I fix to try and get that special sauce. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And so, I mean, you're in Bermuda too, maybe, you know, and I'm jumping o over uh, a bit, but how did you end up in Bermuda and you know, what's the landscape like out there? Is there other franchises in this, in the cell phone repair business or no, there's no other franchise in the cell phone repair business. There were incumbents who had been doing it for many years. You know, one company had been doing it since the the dawn of cell phones and doing repairs. Um, another one of the companies was a relative upstart. And then there were a couple of sort of independent guys running around doing it with various levels of professionalism out of their homes or out of a small office. Um, Bermuda is a self-governing British territory about 700 miles off the east coast of the United States. We're not in the Caribbean. It's not particularly hot here. And it's, it's a first world country. You know, it's one of the richest countries in the world with 63,000 people in it. And everybody has a cell phone. Everybody has a high-end phone. And then things here are quite expensive. So when you drop a phone and break it, you know, people repair it. They don't just run around, buy a new one. And uh, how I end up here, my family's from here. My mother's family goes back to the 1620s. My father's family is also a very old Bermuda family. And I, I was educated to a large measure in the US. My wife's American, my dad was American, but I'm not, you know, this is my home. This is where I'm from. All right, so I guess you, you propose your independent business, right? To, to you break guy fix, which is basically a direct competitor for those who don't know, and uh, CPR cell phone repair. And yeah, I mean, what was that process like and why'd you end up opting for uh, CPR? Well, I, I talked to both at, at reasonable length. Um, you break guy fix seemed to be phone people who got into business. And that's a lot of the cell phone repair industry. It's technicians who had to become business people because, you know, they started out of a, out of their home and then ended up with a storefront. And uh, CPR at the time was owned by a private group and they were business people who happened to be in the cell phone repair business. So, you know, you break I fix was trying to sell me on like they were hiring guys who they went to church with together. And that seemed to be like how their clique was formed. Whereas CPR seemed a lot more professional and businesslike. Um, both companies have since been bought out by large insurance companies. So your mileage may vary. Interesting. Okay. And so you went with, with CPR, you know, did they, I mean, has it been smooth? Did they elevate the game for you? And, and I mean, you talked about supply chain issues earlier, you know, have a lot of those problems that you as this, the CEO and founder of your own business had to figure out on your own, you know, have they largely solved anything for you? Well, see, here's what's funny about the whole thing is I had no concept that our store was in any way exceptional. You know, there's this sort of saying that some people's lives are a, um, 
an example to others and other people's are a warning. My view is that my life is like a warning to everybody else because of the the string of failures that I've had that I, I didn't really talk about. But And so I didn't realize we were in any way exceptional. And so I was talking to the senior management of of CPR and I was talking to like some sales guy at you break guy fix, right? There was, we were dealing at different levels of the organization. And so I remember the call with the CPR guy, you know, it was dark. It was kind of late here. I was alone in the store with all the lights down and he was kind of talking about like the sales they expected per technician. And he threw out a number and I just nonchalantly said, okay, well, that's not a problem. We do double that. And he sort of stopped. Then he continued. And then, um, you know, he asked sort of, he said, our average store does X numbers of sales. I said, okay, well, we do, we do Y. And he stopped. And so I had until that moment, no concept that we were exceptional. And then the, they invited me out to Vegas to meet them at their annual trade show. And we met and were able to do a deal that, that kind of worked out, I think for everybody. So, so a lot of what we're doing was already best practice. Like I thought that CPR was going to fix all my problems. And I think a lot of good franchises do. But the real value in in this business is in the network of people you get. And if you're someone who's struggling to go from like a technician to becoming a business person, you're suddenly going to get a whole bunch of mentors who aren't competing with you in the other store owners. Like that's where the real value comes from. And yeah, CPR corporate, they're going to help you get a nice, pretty looking store that's full of products that are going to sell well at at margins that you can make a living on, but it's going to be up to you to take it to the next level. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're saying that the network has been more valuable than anything else, because in, in reality, you happen to figure out how to run this store really well on your own. So you kind of had a good operational playbook in place. Uh, yeah. And I don't want to make it sound like we did anything special. It was just like we'd, we'd make a mistake, we'd fail, and then we'd fix the problem, you know, kind of systematically. Okay. And just to kind of dive into the numbers a bit, you know, uh, for folks who don't know, CPR cell phone repair, you know, in largely in the US, they've got about 500 locations. It's not, you know, as far as retail investments go, too expensive. It's, you know, their investment range is about 80 grand to close to 200 per location for a new build. And, you know, in 2020, they showed about 900 grand in average revenue for like the top stores, the top 25 stores. So, you know, um, Alex, whatever you're comfortable sharing, just you mentioned, I think you have one of the top stores in the whole system. You know, does, does 900 sound in the ballpark of what you're doing? We are the top store in the whole system and we are doing a multiples of that. Okay, so that's fascinating because... <laughs> So you're in Bermuda with the population of 63,000 people total, and somehow you're outperforming every single franchise in the United States, which theoretically, right, has a much larger market and population density within miles of, of those stores. Yeah, but when you think about like cell phone repair, you know, there's a cell phone repair store on every block. Um, and so we're dealing with a lot less competitive market, which really, really helps. And an owner, there are owners who do more than us, right? Because they have three or five or 10 stores. Um, yeah. Cell phone repair is pretty hard to scale beyond that and, and have it stay profitable. But in terms of single location, yeah, we're it. That's, that. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's awesome. But um, I mean, 
So it sounds like you've probably networked a bit within the system as far as other franchisees. Have you maybe seen like comparables to, let's say, a franchisee in a smaller town in America? Because like you said, right, there's less competition given the, the small market size of Bermuda. You know, do you think that can be replicated? Yeah, I think if, if you're in a small town, so the way we dominate is by also like word of mouth and reputation. Like we protect our reputation very aggressively. And there's some other owners who are really killing it on reputation. You know, there's there's a guy um, out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and like the guy is just absolutely killing it with five-star reviews on Google. He just blows everyone else away, like with his five-star service. And he's an Energizer bunny, and I can see why he can do that. That's, yeah. And, and I, I don't want you to be humble here. Did you think that the market really plays that, like that's the driving factors that it's simply, you've done a good job, you have the reputation, but it's, it, there's only room for one player. So y- your kind of presence is just keeping everyone else away. Um, there's, there's a bit of that. There's definitely economies to scale because we can keep all the parts in stock. And so, you know, once you end up on the backside, so there's either like a, a cycle of decline or a virtuous cycle in this business where if you have the capital to do it, then you have the parts in stock, then you can serve the customer right away. And then that customer then keeps coming back. And so you end up spiraling up and up and up. Whereas if you don't, then you end up sort of slowly burning your pile of capital until your business shuts down. And I've seen people do both sides. And I've also seen guys convert to CPR. And previously they were on this, this struggle of, barely taking out enough to live, but still like shrinking their pool of capital. And then they're able to convert and with the help of the network and CPR, get themselves really on top of their their cash flow. Okay. So that, that cash conversion cycle sounds pretty critical for probably any retail business. Well, it's, it's especially important when, when your parts go out of stock or go out of style in three years. You know, maybe a part will be good for five years. But you really have to stay on top of that stuff and turn it over really fast or you're going to be in trouble. I think that's what makes it hard to scale. I see. Because if you don't sell it fast enough and it goes out of style, no one's going to buy. And then you're sitting on on inventory that's never going to turn a profit for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I ordered a bunch of S20 cases. And for whatever reason, the S20 didn't sell that well. And I still have like 30 S20 cases just sitting there. and And for us, that's not material to our overall business. I mean, it still sucks to have hundreds of dollars sitting there that are probably never going to get sold. Yeah. But if someone does that on large scale, they're out, they're out of business. You're out of the game. So who, who makes those decisions? You know, is that you as a franchisee now kind of calling the shots on what specific products and quantities of products bring in or is, or is corporate dictating? That? Absolutely. It's, it's really at the franchisee level. And there's such a wide variety in different markets and even different stores in the same city. You know, I was talking to guys from, uh, from a major city in the US and they have like one store in the upscale downtown where they cannot give away phones. And then they have a phone in a more working class neighborhood where they're doing financing and they're selling tons of phones. That's almost counterintuitive. I would have guessed that that, that the first. It's because all the people downtown just go to Apple and buy a new phone. You know, I haven't had a phone break in a while, knocking on wood now, but I'm trying to think, is there some cultural difference there where it's just, if you have the money, you say, screw it, I'm buying a new phone versus going through the headache of fixing it. Do you think that's what's at play there? There's probably something like that. I mean, if I was looking to open a cell phone repair store in the US, I'd look for like a second tier city. You know, one of the top performing stores 
was in, you know, like a small state capital for a long time. And this one guy blew everybody else away. So what we've done well in the marketing is, you know, you can spend whatever you want on advertising, but at the end of the day, the best salespeople are your customers who go out and sell for you, right? And if a guy gets what he feels like is a really good deal on a phone, because we sell lots of used and reconditioned phones. If someone gets a good deal, they go and tell everybody about it. And if you treat, you know, everybody like they're, they're really a first class person, you know, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You know, we'll set that up for you. Yes, yes, yes. Is your answer to everything. People go out and rave about you. And that's, that's what we've done. Well, I love that. I love that idea of just that the, the best salespeople are your customers. There's no way that you can hire, you know, we have 10,000 salespeople out there because that's how many people we've successfully served. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's free marketing. Well, it's, sometimes it's very expensive marketing, right? You know, it's, you have to do the right thing for people. And sometimes that's expensive. You know, we've warranted things that we really shouldn't have warranted to protect the reputation. And is that almost the situations where angry customer, frustrated customer, and you kind of just decide that charging for certain things maybe aren't worth it and you're kind of doing a solid for the customer? Yeah, but you can't wait till the customer gets angry. You, you have to think ahead and put them in sales and put yourself in their shoes. Right. And, you know, we had uh, we had a case uh, today even where a guy came and got his battery replaced in his iPhone and there ended up being a strange issue with his um, speakerphone afterward. It passed all of our tests on in, in and out. And what we found out was that there was actually a problem with the housing of his phone where it was grounding out something super random. And we ended up having to warranty and replace that entire housing because it was the right thing to do. We didn't break it but it protects that reputation. You know, we really think about the lifetime value of a customer because we have to, because we're in a small place. You know, if we do our job right, each person comes back to us every single time they have a problem. It's not like we've got a population of two or 3 million where we can burn someone every time we interact with them. No, for sure. But just to play devil's advocate, so that the housing is what you said was problematic for this customer. Was that not on warranty? that the customer couldn't have, you know, paid whatever the claim was or, or would be? It wasn't about the claim. It was about doing the right thing, right? Because it came into us from his point of view working and he got it back not working. I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. We didn't bend the housing to cause it to ground out the microphone. He did. But at that point, we could either have a big fight with him about it or we could just take care of it. I see. Okay. And, you know, this guy, each, each customer has a lifetime value in the hundreds or thousands of dollars, depending on your time frame. So eat the $200 cost. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. I gotcha. And this is a theme I see with a lot of successful owners is you're just, you're thinking more long-term where others might just see that $200 that you mentioned in, in the short term um, and say, I don't want to pay that. Like that's going to cost me money. But yeah, I guess there's strategic decisions and times when you know, you can see more uh, maybe up front today, but you're going to earn that back, hopefully in multiples, you know, down the road. Yeah. And, and to protect the reputation. And one of the things we've done reasonably well, because we were doing so badly at it is now we've done a pretty good job teaching the staff to consistently do the right thing for the customer without needing to involve management. And that's really important if you want to build a system and scale it all. Yeah. And how do you train that of your employees because i know a lot of owners have this fear that 
and you know, this reminds me of, I was at a conference, I forget who the speaker was. Uh, I think it was, it was one of someone from Jocko Willing's crew, if you know who he is, but uh, th- there was kind of a similar thing. And there was this, the, the example they used was at Toys R Us, a cashier um, had a customer who, there was a return policy around Christmas time. And if you returned it, I think like on the 26th or the 27th, it was, you know, you missed the deadline and you had to hold on to it. You kind of, you know, SOL. But in this case, the customer was pleading, saying that there was something that happened. You know, I think it was like a, a baby was born or there was some crazy life event that per- really just prevented them from being able to make it to Toys R Us. And it seemed very genuine. And, and the cashier was like, no, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, that's the return policy. And the manager ended up stepping in and was saying, hey, like, come on. Like, obviously, in like certain circumstances, we, we have to be treat other people like humans and cut them a break. And that was a scenario where they realized their training was wrong because they, they were like, hey, our employees should know that off the bat. So how are you kind of determining and giving them a structure to work within where, hey, this is when you can make concessions. This is not when you can, because that would be, you know, potentially giving away money for no reason. So like when we started out, we didn't have like even price lists for anything. Okay. You know, we didn't have an ERP system. It was all just kind of like, I just kind of remembered what the prices were for various repairs. And we had to go through the whole various painful process of putting together a system of putting in pricing and putting in automatic discounts that people can use and then empowering the staff to use those discount line items. I went away and got married. My wife and I um, have been together for a long time, but we got together. We got married in, in 2018 in January and I went away and sales absolutely tanked, right? I left the store and sales tanked. And that was when I was like, oh, I, I need to fix this. You know, I had a toxic employee who appointed himself the manager while I was gone. And uh, thank goodness, got himself fired about six months later. And I, I, w- I would have done well to have gotten rid of him long before then. So we made sure that it was a lot more systematic and formulaic as to how people could use discounts. And then I really said to the staff, like, I modeled the behavior first off so people could see how to talk to people. And then I just ask people to tell me to make a decision and then tell me about it. Right. So if you're not sure and you can't reach me, make a decision and then just let me know what it was. And if it's the wrong decision, we'll talk it over. And I kind of set some price limits that they could could do that with. And sometimes it went well and sometimes it, it didn't. You know, we had a case where someone walked out without paying a $400 bill because their credit card only partially went through, but they came back with like a bank statement, which showed the hold on their card and said, look, it went through. And, you know, everything is a learning experience. The staff member didn't do anything wrong because they tried to use their best judgment to keep someone happy. We talked about how it wasn't the right thing, but it wasn't a disciplinary action for them. It sounds like leading by example and operating with transparency and you're almost transparency and, and giving Giving your employees the right, essentially, to make a mistake is what is what it sounds like your leadership style is. Yeah, and, and sometimes those mistakes are good mistakes and sometimes they're bad. But by and large, people can make good decisions if they're empowered to. And some people really can't and they shouldn't be. They probably shouldn't be making decisions. You just have to learn who you can delegate the, those decisions to. Definitely. And how has retention been of employees? Because I can see where if you're retaining employees and they're getting a feel for 
what the right and wrong decisions are based on, you know, them going back to you every time they kind of have one of those moments with the customer, you know, it's super valuable. So how have you thought about retention and how, how's that gone? Our, our, our retention has been very, very good, you know, fingers crossed. And I know you said, you know, to not be, uh, not be humble, but every time I sort of start <laughs> to get on a high horse, I get smacked down in life. So, yeah. Um, you know, so far retention has been good. Um, okay. you know, I might have half my staff ready to quit and just not know it, but no, we, we try and just treat people well. Like a lot of it is just about being authentic with people. And we have a pretty strict policy about not lending money to staff and not having staff owe us money, like vice versa. Like it just never ends well. And, um, you know, we have gone out of our way, for example, to, to help a staff member purchase a vehicle or, you know, when two of our staff got stuck out of the country, um, when COVID happened, cause they were on vacation, like two guys had like a three day overlap where one was gone and the other was coming back. And that happened to be when the Philippines, um, where they're from locked down the airport. So they got stuck out of Bermuda for several months. And, you know, we did things like making sure they still had health insurance the whole time so that if something happened to them, they would have been okay. You know, it's funny. I've, I've worked, I, I worked in a multi-unit franchise system as my first job out of college. And it was a retail business for HVAC equipment and parts. And so I have some experience selling products and dealing with warranties and all that. But uh, just on the employee side, you know, I mean, customer service was, was number one. And that was the core philosophy and theme of everything every employee did. But um, sometimes I've, I've found that businesses that focus on customer service, they don't necessarily, they, they almost treat their customers far better than their employees. And I, I can tell you, you have a balance of, of, of focusing on both. Yeah. And you, it's your internal employees, right? Your internal customer service. Like people say, oh man, it must be great to work for yourself. It's like, actually, I work for literally everybody else. <laughs> like I work for my wife. I work for my kids. I work for my staff. I work for my customers. I work for my suppliers. The last person I work for is me. And I'm, I'm pretty happy doing that. So, you know, and, and it's, it does sometimes mean taking the employee's side against customers. You know, we had a guy this morning, so we, we interact closely with, with customers. And so we have a mask mandate in the store, right? Okay. I do not want someone coming in with no mask and interacting face to face for 10 minutes with a staff member. That's a great way to have staff members out sick all the time. Um, irrespective of your personal political views, it's a, it's a business decision, whether you want to view it or not. Yep. And so we have a mask mandate. And so we had a customer act up this morning and said he'd never come back and he doesn't need our services. And the staff member like texted me and said, hey, can you watch the cameras on this? Like, I'm really sorry. It was very, and we talked about it. And she has had a big journey about not getting her buttons pushed by angry customers emotionally because yeah. it's their problem, right? Some people are assholes and they are going to come in our store and act up. And you just have to pity them because they're only our problem as long as they're in the store. Once they leave, they have to deal with being assholes the rest of their life. And that's a hard thing. And then, you know, we've also fired customers before. I think that's really important ask. too is, yeah. is to fire customers. You know, like uh, the most egregious example was we had someone making inappropriate comments to an 18-year-old um, attractive female member of our front desk staff. And he was in his 50s and he was not welcome in our store ever again. If he comes in the store, I'm calling the cops. And, you know, at the, at the other end, we've had customers who have misbehaved who are welcome back, you know, if they have, have shaped up, 
you know, we, we had a customer walk out without paying for a phone and um, our supervisor begged him, man, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm going to do it. And he did it. And he got arrested a, a block away. Oh, no. And and he's still welcome in the store because he came back and was kind of apologetic. And I think he was drunk and having a bad day. And so he's kind of welcome in the store if he's sober. And it's a small enough community to kind of get away with that kind of stuff. For sure. Uh, you know, again, back to my days in the HVAC distribution world, you know, you got to know your customers and you knew who the regulars were. And we served about, you know, in that in the location I was out of, we had about like 4,000 customers in the database of which like 2,000 would come in uh, on a yearly basis, uh, varying amounts. But we, we had our customers, so we know where the headaches end. Uh, one of our ways of firing customers was simply just increase the prices to a point where if they buy it, if they still buy with these increased prices, it, it's worth the headache they're going to give us. But but if not, you know, right, if they complain, it's like, hey, sorry, that's the price. And sometimes that that's enough to where they're like, fine, I'll, buy, I'll take my business elsewhere, and uh, which is what yeah, you want. And- <laughs> and for, for us, it's usually been me having to have the hard conversation and say to someone, hey, you're not welcome in here anymore. You need to leave. Yeah. And, and sticking up for the, the staff. No, and I think even that that in itself is just a good point for people who maybe haven't owned a business yet that if you're the owner and the top dog, I mean, you're the one who has to step up in those situations. And it's not a, it's, I'm sure it isn't a comfortable thing for you to do. I think as well as the owner, you're, you're often not the top dog. You know, you have to pick up the broom and sweep when the sweeping needs to be done. You have to take out the trash. That's something that some people really struggle with, especially if you start to make it. And it's something that I, I'm really working on trying to remember, you know. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, th- I think leading by example is is incredibly important. And the franchise owners I worked with, I couldn't speak highly of them enough. I mean, they were first people in last ones to leave every single day, doing all the little tasks if, if they needed to. And uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a good way to set the tone for the rest of the employees. Well, it's important to remember too, that for like, for the staff, this is a job. And for me, this is my life. If something happens to them, they you know, they leave employment, they go find another job. If I screw up, I kind of lose everything. And um, I went broke, I guess about 11 years ago now, and that was the worst experience of my life, the, by far the worst year of my life. And um, really everything fell apart. I had, you know, failed business and ended a romantic relationship. And um, I was trying to qualify for the Olympics at the time. And the combination of massive stress and, and everything else, I didn't, didn't make it as an athlete. And so um, there's actually a picture of me in a Spanish ambulance at the World Championships in 2012 with my foot crushed. I was a windsurfer with a big smile on my face because it was like, thank God this is finally over. (laughs) And so I never, ever want to go back to that again. That was the worst thing, you know, and there's there's kind of lasting trauma when you go broke. You know, Uh, my wife, thankfully, grew up quite poor in Maine. And so um, between the two of us, we're very tight with money. Yeah. And um, having a bulletproof personal financial situation really helps with peace of mind. Definitely. I, I think a lot of people end up getting themselves levered up. And we probably could have grown faster if I'd taken on a bunch of debt. Um, but that's a great way to blow up. And I never want to blow up again. And I don't know if you guys, you talk with your your listeners about blowing up. But 
in, in financial terms, blowing up is when you have lots of debt, not enough income to cover it. And you go from sort of making it or appearing to make it to very not making it very quickly. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, leverage is a battle. And I've been doing recently on Twitter this thing where I, I do kind of like a business story every Sunday and it varies what I cover, but it's always related to a franchise. And uh, there was a one that got a lot of attention about Quiznos, which like you said, I mean, that they blew up big time. I mean, it wasn't necessarily like it's different blowing up as a franchisor versus right. A multi-unit. Yeah. Franchisee. And it's, it's different blowing up as a corporate versus blowing up as a, as a person or a franchise owner. Yes. Because you can go from sort of publicly looking very successful with a bunch of stores to absolutely flat on your ass in no time. Yep. And, and with kind of no warning to the people around you, because you'll look successful right up until you're evicted. Precisely. Yeah, it's uh, it's a dangerous game. I mean, there are some who who play it, and you don't want your you know your eyes to get to get bigger than your stomach, as far as you know what you take on from a growth perspective. But you know, if people are patient and, and play the long game, I I don't think I've ever seen anyone go bust from growing too slowly. They may m cap their upside and miss out based on allowing other people to enter in before them, but. Uh, if you have stability at one or two locations for a franchise, you know, that's that's tough to to lose out at that point. And so, um, you know, for us, we grew without any debt. And that was a hard thing to do because it was, um, you know, when we first started to really take off, I was like ordering parts, having them FedEx overnight. So I'd order them like 7 p.m. at night. At that time, we could still get FedEx overnight. They'd show up the next day at like 2 and then I'd start installing them on phones, like right away, and then be calling those people the next morning, hey, come pick up your phone. And I was doing um, some of the technician work, a lot of it, and I'm not a very good technician. Um, but that was how quickly we had to turn over our capital. Um, and I would literally just order like what I had in the bank account and I had a little sheet to make sure I wasn't gonna bounce my payroll. So I just used a little spreadsheet. There's some good templates out there with um, a column that would sum up all of the incoming and outgoing. And I'd literally put them in with the expected date, as well as the expected sales as a positive number outgoing as a negative, and make sure I wasn't going to overdraw or, or bounce checks or, or not make payroll. And so for a long time, you know, when you're growing from like, a business that does, say, $15,000 a month in sales to one that does 80, you know, we did that in a year. That's really hard on cash if you don't have any outside financing. Um, and we didn't. So I don't think I'll ever feel out of the woods. And I don't think I'll ever feel financially secure again after that. Like, I'll always be looking over my shoulder for that reason. Yeah, I, I can I can understand that. You know, you kind of never want to get complacent. Well, I guess to wrap up, I mean, so on the topic of expansion, you know, do you have aspirations to move beyond this store or are you, you content to, to stay where you're at or maybe even introduce another brand and another business uh, to the mix? The thing I'm turning over in my head is Bermuda's kind of a protected market, right? You as an American can't come here and open a, a business. Restaurant franchises are actually banned here. There's no McDonald's. Really? The only franchise restaurants that are here are uh, KFC, which predated the ban on franchises, which was in the late 90s. And um, one that's buzzed, that's a local company that's now franchising outside of Bermuda. The coffee shop buzzed? Buzz. It's a, it's a coffee shop and cafe, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've seen them in California. 
I don't think it's the same one. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But they, they're a local company and they're, they've got stores in the Philippines, I think now in a couple other places. So. Okay. But um, so I think that I'm kind of looking for other franchises that I could open in Bermuda that would be adjacent to us. I don't think I'd want to open up any more self and repair stores because it's really hard to manage a business that's a plane flight away. You know, all, all of the CPR guys kind of have their stores within a five hour drive, which even five hours is a hell of a long way, but it's yeah. the guys who have good quality of life have all their stores in, in one corner of a city, you know, and a few guys have ones that are spread out all around a city. So it, it really depends on the city to what makes sense, but I really don't know what's next. I'm trying to figure it out. You know, if you, one of your listeners wants to offer me an obscene amount of money to come live in Bermuda, run a CPR cell phone repair franchise, I, I'm open, you know? <laughs> All right. The offer's on the table, folks. Yeah, but it, but it would have to be enough money that I wouldn't have to worry about what to do next for a while. And I've got two small children. And so even if I'm pushing 40, um, I'm going to be paying school fees until I'm at least 60 at this rate. So yeah, I've got that all, that all to look forward to. <laughs> yes uh all right well you know that's an interesting fact i never knew that they banned uh food franchises in bermuda so that's it was actually called the hamburger wars and the reason for it was was the u.s navy base was pulling out of bermuda and it had a mcdonald's and a local politician wanted to take over the mcdonald's and that offended other members of his political party. And so they got together and they actually just banned franchises to keep it from this one guy's hands. Huh. Because they don't want Bermuda to become like everywhere else. You know, they, they, people hate the thought of a Bermuda that's full of McDonald's and, you know, footlockers and, and that kind of thing. So we do have to be a bit, bit careful about being a franchise in Bermuda. You know, one of our competition does love to scream on social media that we're a, a foreign franchise, which is, I mean, a bit silly because it's not like we're owned by CPR corporate, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it sounds like it's elevated, like the kind of the tension between franchises and independent businesses in Bermuda. But uh, I do see that play out in a lot of markets in the U.S. as well, where it's, you know, buy, buy local, not from franchises. But the reality is, is that franchise owners are local business owners, too. They just chose a different path. Yeah. And um, a lot of it's xenophobia and stuff. And I like my, you know, unique places and going into dive bars and stuff was was one of my great pleasures when I used to to go to bars. And there there's something special about that. Definitely. No, 100%. So do you have any other, I guess, questions for me? No, no, I was going to wrap up. Uh, this has been great. I guess, you know, if uh, people want to reach out, is there any Twitter, LinkedIn, or anywhere specifically where you're active that they could, you know, talk to you? Um, the best place is to reach out via Twitter um, at Rebel Banker. You can put that on the, the thing. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. My tweets tend not to be particularly business oriented because my business is very boring. Like it really is just, <laughs> it's just mainline retail. It's, it's no different than owning a, a mechanic shop or anything else that you have a bunch of technically proficient people and you're processing through repairs. And then we retail, we, we stock items and we sell them. And it's really boring. I hear you. Uh, well, hey, that's... But, but I like boring at this stage of my life. Yeah, it's it's you're you're over the excitement. Um, but yeah, we'll have your uh, Twitter handle in the in the show notes. 
And, uh, you know, I think I can see you got a pinned tweet of uh, your crushed foot. So that's that's a story that people maybe will get to read about on Twitter someday. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, my, my career in finance, like I got to do lots of cool stuff and I managed to always dislike doing it. And so I'm I'm much happier here, but I wouldn't recommend this path to anybody like we made it and we're we're kind of out the other side of of building this business and making it. But we haven't made it to be mega rich or anything. I think that there are franchises and chains that you can build and and do really well for yourself. And this was really hard and we suffered a lot to do it. And it took a lot of long nights. And uh, the reason we made it was because we didn't have a lot of personal overheads. I think that's the most important part to this. I think if we'd had an expensive lifestyle, um, if I'd had kids when five years ago, I, I wouldn't have been able to afford to build this business. Understood. Now I think that's a great point to make and just something for people to consider. But yeah, I mean, you've, you've certainly had a, an eventful path to, that's led you to, to where you are today. It's been fun. <laughs> um, but I, I wouldn't look at someone, you know, like we were kind of born on third base, so to speak, with our business by, by virtue of our market and the competition we had and the backgrounds that we had. You know, my wife has been instrumental in building this business. Um, the initial technician we got is really, really, really good. And so we started with this really strong base that we were able to build on in a really fertile ground. And so I, I think that without those things, it would have been a much, much harder slog. And even then, it was still a really hard slog. Definitely. But if you're an independent cell phone repair store owner, uh, I think you'd be crazy not to convert at this point. Okay. That's good. That's good to, to note. Um, but all right, man. Well, look, this has been good. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, Alex. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.